Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12. We have come to the passage where God is now distributing the land to Israel. And our temptation when we get to a passage like this is to skip over it because it's boring. Okay, let's just be honest. It's not for us. It was for Israel. It doesn't really help us a whole lot. We do this also when we get to um, the genealogy sometimes or or uh, some of the... Uh, all the the records and and uh, things that were needed to put together the temple it just seems so tedious. Why put it there? But I want you I want to remind you before we delve into this uh, this passage that Paul writes to us in Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and training in righteousness. All Scripture. So that includes even even these sections that may seem uninteresting to us. And I hope that you will be able to find that God does have something for us as we go through these ten chapters, beginning with chapter 12. So I'll, I'll spare you and not read this entire passage. I'll let you do that on your own. But what I want you to see today is that God follows through on His promise of success. In the first 11 chapters, we've seen God giving the land to Israel, dispossessing uh, the Canaanites from the land. And He's done that in several ways. We've seen His power over creation. He caused the hail to come down. He, he even parted the Jordan River. He caused uh, the sun to stand still. We also see His power over inanimate objects. The walls coming down. I mean, that is an amazing thing that happened there, that the walls just came down. We also see His power over people. And we saw that in the ambush at Ai and also the confusion of the Amorites last week. But basically, we come to a point where after seven years of fighting against the Canaanites, the land has now been subdued. It was time to receive the promise and take in the possession of the land to finally receive what God had promised to them. And so God follows through on His promise of success. You remember from the beginning, in Joshua chapter 1, that God promises success to His people when they depend on Him for strength. And we find that that Joshua and Israel did do that. They depended on God, and so now God is following through on His end of the, the agreement that He will give them success. And success for the Israelites is different from our success. Their success meant receiving this land of promise, the, the, the land that had been promised to Abraham over 540 years ago, or 540 years earlier, I should say. And so for, in order for them to take possession, God still required that they obey Him and trust Him, and you'll see that as we go along. So the land of Israel had been conquered. The main campaign is over. There was still a little bit of work to do. We'll talk about that. But... Chapters 12 through 21 describe for us the type of land that Israel was receiving during this time. In chapter 12, we see that Israel was a land of victory. In chapters 13 through 19, we see that Israel was a land of inheritance. In chapter 20, we'll see that Israel is a land of justice. And then finally, in chapter 21, we'll see that Israel is a land of worship. So let's begin with chapter 12. 
we see that, that uh, Israel defeated these 33 kings. And this gives us a little bit more detail than what we had in chapter 11, verse 23. Turn there if you would. Uh, it's actually the, the verse right before chapter 12. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. It says there that Joshua took the whole land. And the list of the kings basically gives us further detail into what exactly he did. Because this is a huge campaign. He's taken a large amount of land in this seven years. And so this list of kings are the ones that they had defeated because God had been faithful to them. And so in verses 1-6, through the first thing that we see is that um, God allowed Moses and the people of Israel to defeat these first two kings on the east of the Jordan. Look at verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all the Arabah to the east. And then it lists the kings there. Verse 2, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. Then look down to verse 4. And the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim. And then verse 6 gives us a little summary. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. So we'll, we'll see this a little bit later, but what Moses had done is he promised it to these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And they were going to live on the east side of the Jordan, right? This was a land that already had been conquered, but they were not allowed to take possession of it until they went across the Jordan with the rest of Israel and defeat the Canaanites. So now that, that campaign is over, now they're allowed to go back and possess that land east of the Jordan. In verses 7 through 24, we see the 31 kings west of the Jordan. Let's read verse 7. Now these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, even as far as Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, on the slopes, and in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So it talks about all the land, whether it be in the Negev, the south, or in the central region, or in the north. They had conquered it all. It was time to take possession. They had conquered all of these kings through the power of God. So the first thing that we see is that Israel was a land of victory. Secondly, we see that Israel was a land of inheritance. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. It's nice of God to point out the obvious there, isn't it? Joshua knew that he was old and advanced in years, but God had to tell him that anyway. And uh, we see here that, that um, God is giving to Israel this land, and now He's going to give them instructions on how they are are to disperse it, how they are to distribute it to the people because they have these 12 tribes. Who, who all does it go to? So we, we find here that Joshua is about 95 years old and he would probably live for another 15 years because we find at the end of the book that Joshua dies at the age of 110. And uh, 
However, what I want you to notice is that, is that there is still land that needs to be possessed. Okay? What I, I said carefully that, that the major campaign was over. Okay? The main part of the, of the battle was over, but there were still smaller battles to take place. We could think of it this way. If someone were to try to capture the state of Michigan, let's say Canada attacked us. Okay? They come and attack Michigan. Let's say they attacked all of our strongholds like Detroit, Lansing, Flint, um, whatever, all the big cities in Michigan, Mackinac. We would say that they conquered Michigan. But there would be a lot of smaller cities that they hadn't conquered yet. They still have to, to go and fight those battles. But overall, they have control. That's where Israel is. And basically what we have here is the responsibility lies on the people of Israel, each individual tribe, I should say, to win these final battles. It was their responsibility that once they inherited their portion of the land, that they would go in and disperse the rest of the Canaanites in these smaller cities that they hadn't conquered. The major campaign was over. And they still had this promise from God. Look at verse 6. Chapter 13, verse 6. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, as far as Misrathoth Maim, all the Sidonians, I will drive them out before the sons of Israel. Only allot it to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine and a half tribes, or nine, and a, nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. So God had still promised it to them. They simply still had some work to do. They were still responsible to continue this battle, to finish it up. Otherwise, there would still be Canaanites living in their land. And they could possibly be drawn away. So in chapter 13, uh, verse 8, we, it begins with the inheritance that goes to the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. And what I want you to notice is verse 13. But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the, uh, the Geshurites or the Maacathites, for Geshur and Maacath live among Israel to this day. Joshua is saying, basically, at the time of this writing, which would probably be about 15 to 20 years later, they, these people still live in the land because these tribes did not fully drive them out. This will be a recurring theme that you'll see as we go along. Next, uh, in chapter 14, Joshua moves to the inheritance for the other nine and a half tribes. We come to chapter 14, let's read verse 1. Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance by the lot of their inheritance as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine tribes and a half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. For the sons of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they did not give a portion to the Levites in the land except cities to live in with their pasture lands for their livestock and for their property. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and they divided the land. So we come to the nine and a half tribes and before he gets into the actual apportionment for each of the nine and a half tribes remaining, he first gives a special inheritance to Caleb. That begins in verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal and 
And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me and Kadesh Barnea. Then drop down to verse 12. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord of God, the God of Israel, fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and then the land had rest from war. So Caleb gets his special inheritance. Why did Caleb get a special inheritance, do you think? Well, Caleb received a special inheritance because he was one of the faithful ones to God. In fact, it tells us there at the end of verse 14, because he followed the Lord God, the Lord God of Israel fully, completely. You see, when when it was time to spy out the land of Israel for the previous generation that had already died, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that came back with promising reports, meaning... God, we trust you that you will give us this land. And they came back with these reports. And because of this, we find that Caleb gets a special inheritance, a special city for himself to claim for his own family within his his greater tribe of Judah. So, so, So Joshua begins there with Caleb. Then we move to Judah's inheritance. Judah's inheritance, and that's found in verse 15 or chapter 15, excuse me. What I want you to notice about Judah's inheritance is that they failed also to drive out all of the Canaanites. Look at verse 63. The last verse of chapter 15. Joshua says, Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. Now that doesn't seem like a huge deal when we read it at face value, but turn to Judges chapter 1. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that the Canaanites were successful in infiltrating the land of Israel and gaining it back for themselves and actually making the Israelites subject to them, subjected to them. And we find that that it is not until God raises up these judges to deliver Israel away from their um, the Canaanites' oppression. But turn to uh, in Judges chapter one. I want you to notice verse, excuse me, verse eight. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, set and set the city on fire. And then look at verse twenty-one. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. See, now the tribe of Benjamin is fighting with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is is, uh, basically the same area as Jebus. Jebus is where the Jebusites are from. And so if Israel had had gotten rid of these Jebusites at that time, Benjamin would not still be fighting against it. Israel would not have had to have won that city back. But it was because they failed 
to drive out the Jebusites as God had, had told them to do. And I think the two reasons that they did not do that was because, number one, Moses, or I should say, the two reasons that this is sad is that Moses had repeatedly warned them not to allow any of these Canaanites to survive. Remember God's command to them in Deuteronomy. He said, anyone who is in the land of Canaan, you must completely destroy. If they come from a far land, if they're outside of the land of Israel that I'm going to give you, then you can allow them to be subjected to you. But all those within the land of Canaan, you must completely destroy. And he did that because he did not want them to adopt their pagan practices, which is exactly what happens in the book of Judges. Israel, the very people of God, turn their face away from God and start to follow after these Canaanite gods, these pagan gods. And that's why God wanted them to drive them out completely. But they failed to do so. And, and as we've seen twice already this morning. Then we come in chapters 16 and 17 to the inheritance of Joseph. Joseph, remember, got a double portion of God's blessing. He, he was able, both of his sons were able to receive an inheritance, weren't they? Both Manasseh and Ephraim. Now we've already looked at the one half-tribe of Manasseh that's on the east side of the Jordan. This is the other half-tribe of Manasseh that will now receive their inheritance and the entire tribe of Ephraim. And they, if you look at your map in the back of your Bible, you notice that both of these men received large portions of the land of Israel. So God certainly looked with favor on them. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. The sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. But I want you to notice in verse 10, but they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. Now this is something that would probably be pretty easy to justify. You know, listen, we're putting them to forced labor. It's not like we're, they're in charge of us or anything. But God had told them to drive them out completely, to destroy them. And when we get to chapter 17, we now have the tribe of Manasseh receiving their portion of the land. And basically it's broken down into ten portions given to uh, six sons and five daughters. This was a special uh, case that was given. But uh, Manasseh had, a, had an interesting complaint in this situation. Look at... Um, Chapter 17 and verse um, 14. Uh, let's, let's begin in verse 12. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when the sons of Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance, since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed? And Joshua said to them, If you are numerous, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both both those who are in Bethshean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people and have great power. 
You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its farthest border it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Manasseh's complaint and Ephraim are both. They, they complained to Joshua saying, we don't have enough land for all of our people. Look how many people we have, Joshua, and look how small of a land you gave to us. And Joshua said, listen, you have plenty of land. Go clear out that forest down there. And they said, well, you don't understand, Joshua. There's enemies down there. We, we can't drive them out. They have chariots of iron. And so we can understand uh, how they, they come to this uh, sort of complaint. But Joshua's encouragement to them was, listen, God has given you the promise that you can drive them out. So go and do it. Don't come back to me complaining. If you need more land, go get it. God's already done all these great things for us all along. Do you not trust Him to continue to do it now? Now, they did, this tribe, these two tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim did not fully accept, they didn't fully accept the premise of the conquest. Remember, chapter 4, verse 24 says that the hand of the Lord is mighty. They thought for some reason that it, it lied in them, lied within them that they would have to be the ones to dispossess the land. Obviously, God did use them as an instrument, but ultimately, who was it that dispossessed these Canaanites from the land? It was God Himself. It was the hand of God. How could they not see this and all the great things that He had done? They also didn't fully accept the promise of God. Remember in chapter 1, God said, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. He didn't say just during the major part of the conquest, all the days of your life. All you have to do is take it. It's there. And we look at the tribe of Manasseh and we see all these great things that they were able to see and we're thinking, what fools? How could they be so, so foolish, so, so ignorant? They have God at their very, dispo at their very disposal. But let me suggest to you that we should not be so quick to point the finger at Manasseh and Ephraim. We need to examine ourselves before we do that. Sometimes we complain about the very problem that we've caused, don't we? Sometimes we may be uh, tempted to complain about our children. Say, God, why did you give us these children that will not obey me? Why did you give me these children who do not love you like I do? What is it that you've done to me? And we ultimately question God. And what we're doing, really, is the same thing as what Manasseh is doing. God is saying, listen, if you train up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, then when they are old, they will not depart from those things. Now, obviously, uh, that is a general truth. And we, we need to depend on God in, in raising our children. It is a, it is a very significant responsibility. But we, what we should never do is blame God. That God, it is your fault that these children are like this. If you would have only given me better children, then I could serve you better. I could do these great things for you. And, in, and God has given us both commandments and promises. 
He's given us a commandment to discipline our children. Proverbs is filled with this type of instruction that we need to discipline our children so that they will not be spoiled, so that they will that we will not hate them. In fact, God said if you spare the rod, if you fail to discipline your children, you actually hate your kid. We have these truths. We have these promises. But we think, you know what, God? I know what you told me. But I don't want my kids to dislike me. I don't want my kids to, to think badly of me. So I don't fully trust you is what we're saying. We're saying, God, I have a better way to raise my children. But then when problems come, what do we do? We point our finger back to God and say, God, why? And we are doing exactly the same thing that Manasseh and Ephraim were doing, weren't we? We are saying, God God was saying to them, listen, you have this land, go take it. And they're saying, no, God, we will not take it because it's too hard. We have a better way. We'll We'll just stay here. We won't drive them out. And we end up um, ultimately blaming God when we should be looking first at ourselves. Now, for some of you, it may not be children that God has given you. Maybe it's your spouse or your boss. Maybe it's that you have a trouble submitting to your husband or you have, a, you have trouble submitting to your boss. God, you don't understand what kind of boss I have. How ruthless he is. If only I had a better boss or if only I had a better husband. But what we're doing there is we're failing to follow God and what he's told us to do. And that is that we should submit to our boss. We should submit to our husband, ladies. And men, maybe for you it's your wife. Maybe you think if I only had a different wife, things would be easier. I could serve you better, God. But God says, listen, have you been lovingly leading your wife? Maybe you're complaining about the very problem that, you're, the very problem that you have. Maybe you're complaining about the very problem that you caused. And so we have to be careful because sometimes what we do is we, instead of doing what's right, we, we, we go to God in prayer because we think, hey, we, we need to pray about this. But prayer is never a substitute for obedience. Prayer is never a substitute of obedience. We should never go to God like Manasseh and Ephraim did and say, God, why don't you help me when He's already given them the answer? It's lying right there in front of them. Just take it. Same thing is true for us. We should never go to God crying out to Him, God, why is the situation this way? What are you going to do to fix it? When God's already given us the answer. Now, what I don't want you to do is not turn to God in prayer. Obviously, that's not what I'm suggesting. But when we pray, it should spark something in our minds. Is it us that is the problem, that are the problem? Are we causing this? And let me get really personal now. Maybe you've complained about this church. Has there been a time when you've been frustrated by other people in this church? What they're doing? What they're saying? Or what they're not doing? Maybe you have a problem 
with the way things get done in this church. But I go, I go back to the same point. Are you helping to contribute to that problem? You say, well, no. I mean, I, I, I'm not. Are you fulfilling all of your responsibilities that you have to the church? To be committed to it. To love it. To pray for other people in the church. To serve other people. To use your gifts to build up the body. To be careful to uphold the truth of God. Before we get too critical about Manasseh and Ephraim, we need to look at ourselves, don't we? Because we are often just like them. We have it all right in front of us. God has given us His Word, what He demands of us and what He has promised, and we complain anyway. I hope uh, from that that we will recognize that, that God is ultimately never to blame for our circumstances. God is not to blame for our, our, the evil that takes place in our lives. I should say it that way. I mean, ultimately, God is in control of all of our circumstances, but, but we can't question Him in it. We can't blame Him for what's going on. All right, let's move to the chapter 18 and find the remaining seven tribes. We had the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan and the two and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan. Now we, we have the disbursement of the rest of the land beginning in chapter 18, verse 2. There remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. And notice how they divide it. Verse 9. So the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities and seven divisions in a book. And they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their division. So we come to this, uh, this means of finding out God's will, and that is casting of lots. And we've talked about this before. And what we shouldn't think is that it was just all chance. They rolled the dice to see who would get it. Uh, this was a method that God used to show the people of Israel His will. And we know that cause, because Proverbs chapter... Um, Proverbs reads... Can't find it here, but oh, Proverbs chapter sixteen, verse thirty-three: the lot is cast into the lap, into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so these last seven tribes receive their land, and then we notice in verse forty-nine that Joshua now receives a special inheritance. Verse forty-nine: then they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders. The sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath-Sirah, in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled on it. So we see this apportionment of the land. We have it like bookends. Caleb, at the beginning, gets this special inheritance. Then all the tribes of Israel receive theirs, and Joshua, like the humble servant that he is, waits till the end and receives his special inheritance. God was showing his favor to him. And then in verse 51, we see a summary of the distribution to the seven tribes. So we've seen that Israel is a land of inheritance, but now I want you to see that Israel is a land of justice, a land where justice prevails. And so what God does in chapter 20 is He sets apart six 
cities of refuge. Look at verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. The purpose of these was to provide refuge for someone who was involved in involuntary manslaughter. See, because the law at that time allowed for that person to, to, to whom uh, whoever shed blood by man shall his blood be shed, right? So they had the responsibility and the authority to, to carry out capital punishment. Now, if someone was clearly uh, um, ignorant or doing it involuntarily, killing somebody involuntarily, then he doesn't have to die for that. And that's what God is saying. That Listen, this is going to be a land of justice. I'll allow you to go to one of these cities so that you're not going to be chased by the avenger of blood and you will be able to stay in the city until justice is prevailed. And they would determine whether or not, obviously what you would have happen was someone who committed murder would go to one of these cities and they would also be tried. Now they would have a short time of reprieve and safety, but ultimately when they were found guilty, what would happen to them? They would have to suffer death themselves. But if they were found innocent of that death or that they had committed it involuntarily, then they were uh, free to stay in these cities. And basically these six cities were scattered all over Israel so that any person in any part of the land would only have to take a day or less of a journey to get there. So they could, they could take themselves and their family to have uh, safety. The last thing I want you to see is that Israel is a land of worship. Look at chapter... Um, that's in chapter 21. But go back to chapter 13. I want to show you why these cities are dispersed in the way that they are. Chapter 13, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 33. Verse 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he had promised to them. The Lord God was their inheritance. Uh, you remember that there's 12 portions to the land. And jo- Joseph received a double portion, Manasseh and Ephraim. So now we have 13, we have 12 sons, plus an extra one because of Josh, or Joseph's two sons. So what happened was God took the land away from Levi, Levi basically saying, listen, I am going to be your inheritance. You are going to live on me. You don't have to have some, some special land. But what God does anyway is He gives them 48 cities scattered uh, among all of these 12 tribes and they are uh, able to take possession of them and have pasture there for their animals. The, the term in chapter 21, the, the phrase pasture lands, is used 57 times. I think it, what it does is it indicates for us that they had needs as well. Levi, the, the Levites had needs as well. They had animals to take care of. They needed land so that their animals could graze and so on. And so the Levites would live there in these cities. And what it also did was it gave the Israelites easy access to these men of God. And, uh, and really what it was, was it was an apportionment of their land. So those who had a larger portion of land would give more cities to the Levites or a larger portion of land. 
So they gave according to what they had, according to what God had prospered them, similar to the way that God requires us to give. He doesn't expect you to give a certain amount of money. In the Scriptures, you never find an amount of money that you're supposed to give to God, right? He says to give according to what God has prospered you. Give generously. And so we find a summary in the last three verses of chapter 21 of the uh, really the entire book of Joshua. Verse 43 says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Israel had now received the land that God had promised, something that had been promised for centuries. They were now able to inherit this land. What an exciting time in Israel's history when they were able to have rest from war. Obviously, there was still work to be done. There were still battles to fight. But uh, they were now done fighting after seven years of difficult battle. But as we've seen, something that began as neglect in chapter 13, verse 13, when they failed to drive out these Girgashites and uh, these other tribes failed to drive out these Canaanites, it began as something, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It turned in to a way of life. And that's what you'll notice if you were to read through the book of Judges. That Israel now is not just, they, they now do not just have people within their land that are kind of helping them out. Now these people are actually their rulers. And I think the analogy that we can make for ourselves, the application, is that the same thing is true with us in our Christian life. God requires that we purge the sin from our lives, that we put it away, that we are constantly at battle with it, saying no to sin and yes to godliness, that we are putting off and putting on. These are terms that are used frequently in the New Testament. We should never be at a point in our lives where we sense that we have complete and final rest. Just like Israel did not. There was still work to be done. We still have to fight against sin while we're in this fleshly body. And one day, God will finally purge sin. And we will have rest from the spiritual battle that we now face. But I would warn you strongly that if you allow this sin to remain in your lives, if you and I allow this sin to remain in our camp and we fail to drive it out, it will control us. That is the nature of sin. It will control you. It becomes your master. And that's why I appreciated our reading this morning that, that we cannot serve both Wealth and God. It's got, we got to choose. We can't serve things and put them in place of God. We need to choose. And that's what Joshua is going to say here when we get to chapter 24, I believe it is, that we need to choose who we're going to serve. 
We can't serve them both. We can't allow this sin to remain in our lives. We have to purge it out or else it will become our master. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we thank You for the example of the Israelites. And Sometimes as we read through the story of how You worked in Israel's life and how they failed to follow You completely, we, we, we laugh, really, thinking how silly they are not to have seen it. That they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw all these great miracles. And sometimes we think if only we could see those things, certainly we would follow You more faithfully. But... Lord, we understand from Your Word that it doesn't take any miracles. It doesn't take anybody being risen from the dead in front of our eyes. It just requires simple faith in what You have given us. You have given us so much with regard to our understanding and ability, access to the Scriptures. And we uh, shamefully admit that we don't understand we don't try to understand it as much as we should. We, we don't make it the center of our lives oftentimes. And so we pray that You would help us in that way. Help us to be able to remove sin from our lives. That we would continually be purging sin from us because we know that battle will always be there as long as we are here on this earth. We look forward to... Uh, uh, with great anticipation the day when Jesus Christ will conquer, finally conquer sin and death where we will not have to fight against it any longer. Where we will be able to serve You with glorified bodies, ones that are not marred by sin. We pray that You would help us to live in light of that. For we pray it in our great Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.